This week's podcast is sponsored by Direction. Hello and welcome to another episode of Investing with IBD Podcast. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, and it is January 24th, 2024. And for those of you watching the video, you might notice that Arusha Paris looks a little bit different today. Uh, we are actually joined by Scott St. Clair. He is the IBD Premium Products Manager. Uh, how you doing, Scott? I'm good. I'm good. I'm always having to step in and clean up Arusha's mess. Yes, a little bit, a little bit. But I only think it's fair because last week you were out for uh, the webinar that we did with Mark Minervini, uh, something that's available at investors.com. So I stepped in for you. Now, well, wait, no, you're not stepping in for me, but yeah. you have in the past. So let's, let's, and you uh, did, you did let's really call it even. good. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish you hadn't done so well, honestly. So I, I heard how, how great your webinar was with Mark, and I kept telling everybody, well, that's because Mark's so good. That's uh, that's what I was telling him too, but you know, it, it uh, certainly certainly uh, is uh, something that we do for each other. And also joining us for the first time on our lineup here is Stephen Mulholland. Uh, Steve Stephen is from the Mulholland and Cooperstock Group. Uh, he's the chief investment officer there. Of course, they also have an ETF MKM. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about kind of that strategy that they have for that ETF. But Stephen, it's really great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Justin. Uh, good to meet you, Scott. And um, no affiliation to Mulholland Drive, but it's nice to be here with some <laughs> right. uh, some Orange County guys today. Yeah, yeah. I, there was a little bit of talk in the pre-show. Uh, you know, Scott St. Clair and and Stephen were kind of talking about their their Irvine interests, um, and uh, and and we got into some some mascots too for college, which go is, anteaters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> go anteaters. <laughs> so, well, let's get right into it. Uh, we're, we're kind of starting a little bit out of order today because we wanted to get Stephen on to get some thoughts, a little bit of contrarian thoughts. I mean, you know, a lot of people are just looking at the market right now and saying, go, 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 especially with the Fed uh, out there kind of suggesting with the last couple um with the last couple meetings, hey, you know, it, it's the cutting is around the corner, you know, looking at the dot plot, everything like that. So, Stephen, let's let's just kind of get your take real quick on your approach, uh, you know, and then kind of your thoughts on what's happening with the Fed. So first of all, your approach, you know, what what kind of uh, would you say is your investing style? Uh, th thank you for that question. And um, just as, as a preview, I think the Federal Reserve always thinks they're doing a great job uh, right. until something blows up. So, uh, And I think everyone thinks that they're not doing a great job pretty much for the most part. Very, you know, they can uh, always be doing better. <laughs> very true. Very true. Uh, so my approach to investing is what I've learned over my institutional investment career, which is um, simplify things, pay attention to what matters. And that tends to be trend and valuation. And they're there's often uh, investors are in one school or the other. Uh, they're both incredibly important. Um, so to connecting it to today's market and the ETF, uh, we I've been in the institutional investment world for, uh, geez, uh, since, since 2001. And uh, what I've learned are um, the, the uh, what I've what I've done with what we've done with the ETF is try to embed the key signals of trend evaluation in the ETF. And you're right. Uh, you, if you're contrarian and wrong, it's terrible. If you're contrarian and right, it's it's wonderful. You're a genius. Um, you're you're a genius. You saw and, what no one else did. Th that's right. And I think what I what I love about trends, uh, my my makeup is much more on the valuation side, right? 
whether you're looking to buy a house or stocks or bonds, what's the fundamental case? Uh, looking at the cash flows, evaluating a business. Um, but the market is very smart. And I really love the overlay with trends. And when it gets interesting is when the trends and valuation agree or disagree. And in this market, um, and to your point about contrarianism or confusion, confusion, trends and valuation disagree. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. So what what are you kind of using as your sense of why you think valuations are out of whack right now? So we take a Bayesian approach to valuation. So anyone who follows so sport, what, what is a Bayesian approach, you know, for those that maybe don't remember their stats? <laughs> that, that's a great question. And I'd encourage any listeners to ask chat GPT that question, <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, which, which I did ahead of this podcast and it gave a really good answer. Um, uh -huh. So all it means is that you have a probability uh, mm -hmm. when your when your period starts and then you update it as new information becomes available. Um, so so um, keeping the analogy in mind of sports, whether you like uh, baseball, uh, the NFL, hockey, soccer, before a game starts, uh, really smart people in Las Vegas handicap the game. And they say, you know, hey, the Lions are underdogs, right? So if you go through the first or second quarter and the Lions are crushing the opponent, uh, one interpretation is, oh, the bookies were wrong and they didn't know anything. The other interpretation is the second half might be tough for the Lions and it'll regress closer to the prediction, right? Everyone they might have priced that in. <laughs> they might have priced that in and you just might have to wait for the for the whole game to unfold. Well, our approach to the valuation is exactly the same. So um, every, every good investor knows uh, uh, institutions, Warren Buffett, you can make really good forecasts on a valuation basis for the next 10 years or 20 years. Uh, Robert Schiller showed that very well when he came out with his cyclically adjusted PE ratio or CAPE. Uh, mm -hmm. The rub is, uh, all good investors know, that tells you almost nothing about the short term. So the riddle that was actually initially proposed by Ben Stein, which some of the listeners might know, uh, was how can you make a prediction that's accurate for 10 years, but um, tells us nothing uh, about the next one, two, three, four, five years. After all, if the forecast you made in 2023, 20, uh, sorry, 2013, 14, and 15, well, when you get to 2024, you've run through seven, eight, nine years of your forecast. So what we do is we look at that stub period as our, uh, as our uh, explanatory variable. We don't look at what the CAPE is today. We look at how much the market's overshot or undershot reasonable expectations for models that have very high predictive power or for our statistically inclined listeners, R squareds of 0 0.8 or 0.9. So the next, I, I can see Justin, your furrowed eyebrows. So I'm gonna fill in the next uh, <laughs> part of the thought, which is if you look at, and, and you, you've pulled up the perfect slide for anyone uh, uh, following online, watching on YouTube, um, the S&P 500 has overshot its 10% average that we all know and well. Uh, over uh, over the last five years, six years, seven years. So in very simple terms, when the S&P generates 15% of year returns over the last five years, as it recently has at the end of uh, 2023, um, that gets people really excited. In fact, a survey was done recently uh, that polled uh, individual investors and said, what do you expect the S&P to deliver in the future? Well, guess what? They picked the exact number that we've observed in the last five years, 15%. Now, when you ask institutional investors, what did they pick? Well, they're no better. They just have a slightly longer time horizon. They pick 7%. What's 7%? Well, that's the annualized return for the S&P of this millennium. 
since 2000 to uh, 2023, the S&P's done 7%. Why did it do 7 Because everybody got really excited about dot-com tech, Microsoft. It, stop me if any of this sounds familiar. They got really excited about Amazon in 1999-2000 and set us up for lackluster returns. So um, rather than just look at recent history, although that's very tempting and we all do it a little bit, um, as long as humans are investors, we're all going to overemphasize our personal experience. We look at the miss of the forecast. We're in the third quarter. We know what a good forecast was before the game started. So we use that forecast for the fourth quarter. And what our model says is institutions here are closer to what's likely to unfold uh, in the near future of seven. And if you look at Vanguard's expected returns for the S&P, uh, there's a bit of a range, but the midpoint's about 5%. So 15%, very optimistic, historical average 10, probably even a little optimistic. And the reason uh, that we agree with Vanguard is because our Bayesian model says we've overshot uh, we've already we've already earned the future returns in in the last three four and five years. We've pulled ahead uh, future returns. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring Scott in here a little bit. Uh, so you know, a lot of times you and I were just looking at the chart, right? And um, how does this kind of? I know that you listen to a lot of macro and you're fascinated by the macro aspect. Um, what's what's kind of your take on the the valuation story of things? Uh, I love to read it. I love to study it, but I find that it almost always, and Stephen might be able to confirm this, goes on much, much longer than even the staunchest, smartest, <laughs> most experienced investors could ever imagine. And there's a difference uh, between being right and making money, but there's also uh, career risk. And uh, you I, as a somebody who was in the business uh, in a number of ways, um, you you have to you have to kind of be right, and you have to kind of be right at at certain you know you have a certain amount of window to be right. So um, I would say, how does how does he tackle that uh, being right, but also being there when it switches? You got to be there to participate, you know, you, uh, versus you know not being in the business anymore, right? Uh, I, I, I run an advisory in, a in addition to the ETF, and I, I couldn't agree more, especially with the career risk point. Uh, that one hits home. If Justin, <laughs> could, yeah, if Justin could skip ahead uh, to the four colored boxes in the slides, or Mike, whoever whoever has uh, major control of the slides, mm -hmm. um, if they could skip ahead to the the green, red, yellow. Perfect. So, um, Scott, kind of to answer that question. Um, so, so, uh, and for for listeners, I'll, I'll size up what this chart is. But um, in March of two thousand and nine, when the S and P bottomed ominously at six sixty six, we were in the upper left quadrant, which was we had incredible expected returns. Uh, it, sorry. Uh, yeah, we were in, had incredible expected returns and bad trends, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to convince someone to buy the stock market. I mean, Warren Buffett did it. Uh, then President Barack Obama did it. But it took a lot. It, they needed a PR campaign. Uh, people said, you know, this stock market, it's not for me. They're, unfortunately, I, I know people personally, firefighters, otherwise, who said, you know what, I'm done with the stock market. I can't take 
this kind of a, a roller coaster ride if it's going to go this low. Yeah, a 57% drawdown, you know, if 50, you were in the S&P 500. <laughs> 57% drawdown. And if you were close to retirement, you know, um, uh, it, devastating. It, yeah, and no, I'm, I'm glad you put it in those terms, Justin. I mean, in the chart, right, we lose the emotions of it. But, you know, if you knew people going through that, if you had a 401k, yeah, 57% is devastating. So March 2009, we started upper left, bad trends, expected returns, evaluation guy. Seth Klarman, Warren Buffett was salivating, right? A a a a trend guy, John Henry, uh, uh, um, the the hedge funds that use momentum were saying, "Hey, not quite yet, right?" We quickly move from the upper left quadrant, which, if you will, to paint a picture for our listeners, imagine you're in Seattle, one of my personally favorite cities in the United States. Pretty quickly, we moved uh, east to New York City, and we had great expected returns and wonderful trends. And that persisted from 2009 to about 2017 or 18. And I had a lot of clients of mine in New York. I managed a hedge fund, but I also had individual clients. They were terrified. You know, are you sure we can invest in the stock market? Are you sure it's safe? Meredith Whitney just said the municipals are in trouble. They're going to go bankrupt. America's going to go bankrupt. In retrospect, it seems like a no-brainer, um, but there used to be headlines running the Investor's Business Daily, other uh, 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 other uh, periodicals that said, you know, the most hated bull market in history, the most ignored bull market in history. We all wondered in 2017 and 18, did everybody miss it? Why didn't people get more excited about the stock market? It seemed largely over. Um, the Fed tried to raise interest rates. The president used his Twitter bullpit very well to get the Fed to lower interest rates. It was a brief hiccup, but then we were back to the races. So to answer your question, Scott, um, we moved from Seattle to New York. It was only really recently, actually right before COVID, we moved further south to the danger zone, which I like to think of as Florida. It was still sunny, uh, <laughs> but there were there were sharks and alligators in the water. Hurricanes. <laughs> Hurricanes. So this is, it, it, according to our model, and this is why we use the Bayesian approach rather than being slavish, because uh, GMO, uh, I don't want to call anybody out individually, really respected valuation managers. Valuation is your core thesis and you don't incorporate trend you were jumping out of the market way too early. It's, it's a big yes. reason what, yeah, it's a big reason why we use trends and charts as well. So we're in Florida and we're still in the stock market, but we say, hey, we need to start to be a little careful. And, and the thing to really watch out for is when you go from Florida back to Southern California, the land of wildfires and earthquakes um, <laughs> is only about 14% of the time since Alan Greenspan hmm. became Fed chair. It's only been 14% of the time that we've had, according to our model, and we can get into this more if Justin Scott or anyone's curious, only 14% of the time have we had bad technicals and bad expected returns. That's 2001, that's 2008. And interestingly, our model said the market was overvalued by about 20% right before COVID. Obviously our, our model didn't know about COVID, but when it happened, the market was already vulnerable. And today the valuation is back to the same using our model as it was pre-COVID, pre-01, pre-08. So um, the reason our ETF is still 50% in the S&P 500, not zero, is because of the trends. But mm -hmm. when the trends and the valuations agree, and again, it's, it's not a perfect prediction. There are some false indicators, but for investors who can't stomach drawdowns of 20 to 50 or 60 percent investors who make regular withdrawals um or investors uh you know for those for those investors we're still in 
the the yellow zone, not the red zone. Um, mm -hmm. There's there there um, and for so for us, it's still okay to have exposure to the S and P, but it's a good idea to lighten up. So that's when we would be concerned is when when John Henry and Warren Buffett or Seth Klarman agree. That's when you should be nervous. And and I will add, it ties to another slide we have uh, after this. We can pull up now or later, which is uh, the U.S. Uh, market cap is 60% of the world. 40% um, of the world, with the exception of Netherlands and India, is fairly valued or significantly undervalued, right? So there's also an opportunistic side to this that investors can still earn 8 to 10% or higher returns in a lot of really good markets around the world. Japan's personally one of our favorites. Um, you can also get 5% risk-free in treasury bills. That hasn't been true for 15 years. Um, so, you know, um, the career risk I guess it's also a career opportunity, um, and although I've definitely been exposed to both. The opportunity is if you can avoid those 20, 30, 40, 50% drawdowns and still compound at material rates, um, we've also found that to be uh, quite popular with clients as well. And it's funny that you mentioned the whole international uh, you know, scheme <laughs> here because we were just talking on our show earlier today on IBD Live, and this is something that's come up a few times. Uh, Scott St. Clair has been you know, very interested in a lot of these international areas, Japan, especially, but Poland, um, you know, uh, Brazil, Latin America. I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know, run the gambit. Um, and you know, the, the joke has been, you know, Arusha, who usually is guest hosting with me, uh, has been that, you know, he's been trying this for a while, hasn't been successful at it. You know, a lot of people yeah. have been kind of, you know, international it's, it's, it's overdue to happen, but it hasn't. So, you know, again, I think to Scott's point earlier, it's it's the timing, right? You know, you, you you can be right, but if you're too early, sometimes that's even worse. So, uh, what's 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 your take on that, Scott? Yeah, I, he, everything he said just resonates with me, and you know, and my career risk is you know firing myself, right? Which I joke unlikely to uh, happen. You like yourself so, a lot. Yeah, I haven't fired myself in <laughs> 25 years, but there's been some years where I probably should have fired myself. <laughs> That's the, uh, I, I say that only slightly tongue in cheek, but. Give, or yeah, at least I, giving yourself a leave of absence. Uh, yeah. You know, suspended. <laughs> so I can try, you know, an ETF and I've owned an ETF in Poland, EPOL, and I've, uh, I currently own the, the Japanese ETF and I've tried Brazil a few, few times futilely. It hasn't hurt me, but it hasn't helped me. But uh, yeah, it, uh, I think the world is getting smaller and smaller by the minute and, and, uh, it's both good and bad. And as an investor, you, uh, there's, there's some great company. I mean, most great companies are in the U S obviously, but ASML is comes to mind as a great, great, fantastic company. Um, Although I will Europe. say that Stephen and I, when we were talking earlier, uh, Netherlands wasn't on your, uh, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> overvalued. Yeah. You know, yeah. ASM is probably overvalued of course, but to his point about trend, uh, the trend is at least the way I would interpret it uh, very much up. So, yeah, I, 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 a lot of this uh, makes sense to me and is, is appealing for sure. Uh, you know what? Uh, before we kind of wrap up, I, I do also want to kind of revisit uh, the, the, the Fed, the Fed idea. And I'm going to I'm going to go to your slide um, that is uh, related to the Fed and what you call the Fed mistake index. Can you can you describe this a little bit? Yeah, that's great. I could use both of your help because if you Google the Fed mistake index, nothing comes up. It, um, right, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> I tried to do that. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, we talked about it. 
No, and and it's it's actually born from conversations. I'm going to give my brother a big uh, shout out here. My my uh, twin brother runs the second. He used to run the second largest commodity mutual fund in the country, a Credit Suisse. He's launching his own commodity hedge fund. Um, but but we coined he coined the term Fed Mistake Index. So feel free to popularize uh, <laughs> okay. its name. But um, I think it's great. And what it what it does. So simple terms. It's the effective Fed funds rate. And you could use three-month treasury bill, effective funds rate, official policy rate. What it does is it takes the difference of the Fed funds rate and the two-year treasury, right? Mm-hmm. The, the two-year treasury, you could, you could fire the entire Fed and hire the treasury market. And the two-year treasury does, as, uh, much, does a great job of telling the Fed where the Fed funds rate should be, right? Jeff Goonlock always says the best predictor of the Fed funds rate is the two-year rate. So what the Fed mistake index does takes the difference. Today, it's plus 100, meaning the effective Fed funds rate is 5.38. And uh, the two-year was uh, uh, 4.33, I think. uh, No, 4.38. Effective funds rate is 5.33. The average is minus 50 basis points. So 100 and the 50 gives you the Fed should cut 150 basis points. And if they do, the Fed funds rate will be exactly in line with the historical three-month treasury yield, with the historical Fed funds rate. Banks can't make money when the, federal, when the, um, when the curve is inverted, right? Mm-hmm. The, the banks just reported very uh, poor earnings. Uh, the street expects 9% earnings growth for financials in uh, 2024. That's going to be very hot, hard with an inverted yield curve, right? Um, I'm sure Scott and Justin will agree with this, hopefully hopefully Mike behind the scenes, but my mortgage rate is 2.85, right? <laughs> I, I just checked Mortgage News Daily and it's down from the highs, but it was 6.95 today, right? Mm-hmm. 6.95 might be less than eight or nine. It's a lot higher than 2.85, right? Yeah. So even though the market has confounded critics, right? And um, for really good reasons, right? American corporations and consumers are really resilient. Uh, companies were very wise to lock in uh, their debt before the Fed raised their interest rates. Homeowners made sure to lock in their mortgages. The, all these things have delayed, plus excess COVID cash, have delayed the economic reaction a lot of smart people were expecting. But eventually, it's going to bite into the economy. So if the Fed wanted to pull off their soft landing, which, as someone's pointed out, uh, in 2007, we had a soft landing before the crash, right? It always, <laughs> it, it always feels like a soft landing. And very ominously, if you compare the Fed mistake index now, and it's on your chart, mm-hmm. to right before the big recession of 2008, uh, you can see, and anyone watching online can see, we peaked in 01 and 08 right around 100 basis points. And without looking for parallels to the great financial crisis, there are myriad similarities in the commodities market, in the stock market, uh, in the uh, Fed mistake index. Um, so if I were advising the Fed, I would just say, listen to the treasury market. You know, um, it's obviously more distorted than it was historically, but the treasury market's pretty smart. If I were the Fed, I I would cut 150 basis points, and I think that would increase the odds of a soft landing. The longer they feel comfortable and the slower they go, the higher the odds go that we get another a repo quake or you know so we find out some hedge funds are using too much leverage to arbitrage the the uh the reverse repo market the treasury market you know east asian crisis for our listeners that have been in the market for uh, for a while you know something blows up somewhere right it's it's um so yeah i the fed the fed is offsides 
and they should they should stick to cutting sooner than sooner than later by 150 basis points. Well, and if they were doing doing it nice and slow as they tend to, I mean, that's certainly not the way we're ramped up. We had a number of, you know, 50 basis point hikes, um, but that would be six, uh, six quarter point. And I mean, that's that's what a lot of people are expecting. But then on the other hand, I mean, I look at the if, if, if the Fed cuts six, you know, six times. That's usually when there's trouble. That's usually when like, oh, we're, we're kind of in panic mode. We need to really do something because, you know, things are breaking. I mean, and they're usually late, right? That usually happens after some crisis uh, has, has, has already started unfolding. So um, you see that I, in the chart. If yeah. you go back a few years, you see how low we got, right? That's when, the, when everyone was screaming to the Fed, hey, you need to raise rates, right? And they mm -hmm. said, well, we Just don't see inflation. Mm -hmm. What's that, right? And, and you can see that meant that they had to raise by, by more than they should have later. So exactly to your point, they, they were too slow before and they're, they're kind of too slow now. And I, I, I think the Fed thinks they're doing us a service by doing all these interviews and over communicating, right? You remember Greenspan used to show up and people said, how big's his briefcase? Is he in a good yeah. mood? Right. There, there, there might be something to that. I personally, I would like to have the Fed less operate like a reality TV show. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, they're data dependent. Well, they should be paying more attention to the market. And I, I agree, the sooner they act, uh, then the less they'll have to overreact later. And hopefully the less of a mess they'll have to clean up. And um, if I could add, and this is just a hope, this isn't an expectation. I really hope we don't go back to zero. It would be nice if they set a right. floor uh, of somewhere around 2% or so. Mm -hmm. A little, a little bit more normal, you know, because yeah. again, zero was very abnormal. I mean, 2% is still low, but it's not, it's not zero, <laughs> which is where we were for a while. Uh, hey, Stephen, it was really, really a pleasure chatting with you today. I'm really glad you came on. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, where can where can folks kind of find out more information about your your thoughts and you know read some of your blogs? I found some of those interesting. Where, where do you suggest they go? Uh, MKMETF.com. And then we also have a Substack, which is in, Inbox CIO for Chief Investment Officer. Awesome. And then do you uh, are, are you on Twitter at all or anything like that? I'm taking a long Twitter break and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't blame you. Well, thanks again for, uh, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Okay. When we come back, Scott and I are going to start talking a little bit about the market, kind of digest some of what we learned from Steven, and then we'll get into some stocks. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Trading Apple. Sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast. It's Justin Nielsen, your host. And joining me as my, my special co-host today is Scott St. Clair. He is the IBD manager of premium products, especially well-versed in MarketSmith. Uh, gosh, it, it's one of those things where you're, you're not only, you know, you're not only the, uh, the manager of premium products, but you were also a client for a lot of years uh, back in the day. So that's kind of how he got his job. For those of you that don't know his story, um, I should also recommend highly that you know if you are a marketsmith member uh there's some great great uh webinars and things educational in nature that marketsmith is doing all the time you know uh scott you've got you've got your own kind of weekly thing that you do uh your take on the market um to wrap up the week every week and and that's great stuff there so we're going to kind of get like an early preview maybe to a degree yeah. and kind of uh go through the market a little bit here um i mean if we if we just pull up the nasdaq right now uh things things started off 
really nice, but that's uh, not how they ended. So maybe talk a little bit about what you're what you're seeing out there. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess it, the jury's still out on the volume, but today might have been a stalling day. If, if, can you confirm or deny that uh, fact? You, you know what? It, it 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 does look like it to me. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's still, you know, when you're up, you know, when you're up 0.36%, that's still a pretty oh, good gain. Still, still um, the gain. Yeah, yeah. So, but but you know, 0.4 for market school purposes, 0.4 is what uh, what starts disqualifying it as like, oh, it's up too much, but. You know, we have had a little bit of lower volatility lately. So, you know, that's that's the one thing that kind of makes me feel a little bit funny. It's certainly not a good look, right? When you when you are up that much and you give it all away. Um, and, you know, the volume, again, a lot of times for stalling, we don't necessarily need it to be above the previous day. Uh, there were some cases where Bill actually said, okay, 95% of the volume was there. But in all of those cases, he was kind of looking at, you know, uh, uh, the, the the situations where it was really big volume the day before, and it continued to be big volume, but it was 95%. So there's a lot of like nuances there. Uh, bottom line, whether it's technically stalling or not, it wasn't a good look, right? Yeah, it, it felt like, you know, in, you know all of the, uh, the usual suspects felt a little stallish today. NVIDIA, SMCI, it's... It, um... Those are the two that I focus on the most because the you know we always focus on the ones we own. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it look uh, I you know I'm always looking around the corner. Fortunately or unfortunately, one one when I mean, you've had as much experience as me, um, you know that, that uh, you know things can change from good to bad and from bad to good. It, it, look how quickly this market changed from bad to mm -hmm. just an incredible bull market, and so. I'm always wary and, and aware that, you know, things can change the other way. And, and um, you know, I, 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 I kind of keep that uh, not necessarily in the back of my mind, but um, it, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of, fortunately or unfortunately. It's just mm -hmm. kind of the way I trade. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it feels like the market's been so good, like it, as strange as that sounds. That bothers me. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's Is like it too I just, good. <laughs> it's just, it's just, yeah. It's like it's been so good. And there's been the the leadership is great. There's can some type stocks, stocks with big earnings and sales. SMCI pre announces the stock goes up tremendously, and so the market's humming on all cylinders at, at this point. But in, um, it's it's a long year. It's only January twenty fourth, so yeah. uh, it, it, you know anything can happen. I yeah. mean, just last year, in March of last year, was the banking crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. It, you know, they were worried that the banks were, you know, they were going to start fall, falling like flies. So, um, yep. yet last year had so many different things happen. And so anything could happen for this year. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, again, if we kind of just put this in the context, uh, look, we had a big move off of the bottom from, you know, 2022. I mean, really, if you look at kind of the, you know, th th this October area um, and, and, and in 2022 uh, was really kind of the bottom. And of course, that was a little bit of a uh, a shift in, you know, it was the worst CPI ever, you know, but it's kind of like that's as bad as it got right with with inflation. Um, we had such a such a big move off the bottom, uh, kind of you know topped here in the summer, and now 
you know, this this was as as brutal as this was, it was still a higher high overall, you know, not on the short term here, but, you know, in this longer term trend. And then we've really kind of, you know, jumped off the bottom here from October of 2023. And, you know, a lot of people are pointing out, you know, how many weeks up in a row is this? I mean, it's like, what, 11 weeks out of 12 up in a row. Um, you know, we had something similar back here, uh, you know, into the summer of, of 2023. But is that sustainable is, I guess, the question. And and for how long? You know, how much how much more do you want out of it before it takes a break? Correct. It's a it's such a difficult dance that we do between taking profits, selling into strength um, and then and or allowing the stocks room to breathe. If you're going to have a uh, a, mo a model book stock, you're going to have to let it pull back 20, 25 percent a number of times. And, um, you know, some of us are really good at one and, and not very good at the other and uh, or vice versa. So, you know, I would just say, know, know what you're good at, know what type of trader slash investor you are and, um, you know, adjust accordingly. Like right now, it doesn't look like anything could go wrong. So mm -hmm. I would say, OK, build build that in. What would you do if NVIDIA went down to the 50 day in, you know, in 12 out of 15 sessions? Mm -hmm. um, you know, things like that that seem unlikely. But gosh, you, every time you think something's unlikely in the stock market. It becomes it, it's it becomes likely. It's it's really uh, so dynamic. Mm -hmm. And you know, let me just get your take here, real quick, because again, there's there's often we make these comparisons to sports, and you know, what inning are we in? Um, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, we're we're in early, you know, early innings right here, because you know, if you if you take it from this October low of 2023, it seems like oh, we we, we just started, but if you take it from October 2022. You know, then it feels like a little bit more, uh, in you know, a, a yeah. little later in the game. So, where are you kind of taking it as our start here? You know, that's a very good question. I, I guess, if you force me to answer, I would say the start was the in the lower, the lower part. October um, twenty twenty two. Yeah, Nvidia broke out back mm -hmm. then. I mean, there was very few breakouts, but um, well, and I guess I'm going to throw another wrinkle in there and throw up RSP because. You know, as strong as the Nasdaq looked, that's not what the equal weighted S and P five hundred looked like. So for most stocks, that's not what they looked like. That was just, you know, the S and P five hundred and the Nasdaq looked very different uh, from most stocks. Let's say. Yeah, and that's part of the 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 thing, the narrowness of the rally that people um, talked about, which kind of became like an excuse for a lack of participation <laughs> on their part, I guess, right. yeah. because honestly, there's a lot of great stocks. If you did any kind of uh, year to date or last 12 months screen in MarketSmith, there's, you know, there's home builders, there's uh coal AMR. Yeah. Um, there's uh, a lot of industrial, uh, you know, companies that, that contribute to the home building segment like top build or BLD. I'm just throwing names out mm -hmm. there that look, I didn't have any of those, but I mean, they're out there. So mm -hmm. it, I don't think the market was as narrow as uh, people claimed it to be, at least in this, in the, in my universe or in our universe where, you know, I'm looking to own eight, 10 great stocks in a perfect world. It's not, it's not always like that, of course, but if you, if you only need to own 10, 12, 
even let's say 20 stocks, they were out there for you. You just had to do some digging and be open-minded to what you were seeing. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, it wasn't a situation where you had, you know, the, the the current going with you and, you know, kind of pushing you along and a little bit more forgiving of mistakes uh, as, as it is now. Uh, it was a little bit more like, okay, you know, you had to pick, pick the winners. You had to really kind of narrow in on what was truly happening out there and kind of and sometimes squelch the noise because if you if you just went by headlines that was not telling you necessarily where to be at the right time but you know to your point i mean even during the bear market you know as bad as the nasdaq looked i mean oil stocks had a phenomenal right. move during that time and yeah. uh, so so I, I i i i see what you're saying i mean really i it's probably in between you know it it wasn't it wasn't as you know there were those stocks out there so you know as you said it, it wasn't kind of um, as bad as people were saying it was, but maybe it wasn't as good either as the indexes were showing, you know, because of what was happening with the Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And the indexes, for lack of a better term, in my humble opinion, have become a bit of a flawed product uh, yeah. in mm -hmm. that regard because they are so top heavy. You know, I mean, my, Microsoft, I think if it was its own uh, country stock market, it'd be like, I think, seventh. <laughs> you know, in the in the world as yeah. a as its own you know country stock GDP, market. right? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think Stephen mentioned, I believe you know the the U.S. market makes up I think sixty percent of the the all world index. I think is what they call it. The uh, mm -hmm. AWI, you know, there's some acronym for it. But so and and if you force me to argue uh why i i think i could you know the best companies in the world are in the us yeah. microsoft nvidia uh you know and on and on and on so it's that's partly why they've done what they've done is because of the the, the earnings and you know meta and things like that that they can generate the cash flows so it's look if, if the stock market was easy it um it, it would everyone would do it part, partly why it's so appealing to myself and mo and so many other people is the the um the intellectual stimulation that it provides <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. it's not only you know can you be rewarded with money if you get it right but there there is um it's 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 fun to try to put the pieces together um and it's ever changing you get a new piece of information and this information you had before over here is no longer any good yeah. you got to it's like building a puzzle that's always changing pieces mm -hmm. and um yeah that's uh that's appealing to me i, lo I love it mm -hmm. so just to kind of wrap a wrap a bow on this market segment uh what, what's kind of what are you looking for going forward are you are you uh what signs are you looking for that are going to make you nervous and what signs are you looking for that are going to be like oh you know what i need to i need to squelch my fears and and go in even even harder yeah so for the way i would trade i i need some back and fill so i i um mm. i think there's going to be a lot of volatility this year it's an election year they haven't even considered that now i know it's 10 months away or something but remember the market will start looking forward to the election mm -hmm. probably sometime in may or june or something like that so i think there's gonna be a lot of volatility to the year and um <clears throat> but i i don't you know i'm not gonna put some kind of bet down and because if I'm wrong, I lose a fortune. And if I, you know, I'm, I'm more of a take it day by day, week by week, just like Bill would say, Bill O'Neill. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, there's no perfect way to do it, but that's, 
the best way that I know. So right here, as we sit here now, the market's very extended. It's been very good. If you are, you know, pedal to the metal, I think you're, you're uh, pushing the envelope a little bit. Yeah. I would expect the market to at least um, test you uh, yeah. at some point in the next uh, handful of weeks to months. And so, you know, figure out what you really love. Uh, keep those. Figure out what, you know, you just think, ah, this one's okay. Maybe trim those or sell those and, um, you know, get down to a, a manageable level. There, there's nothing wrong with being 70% long or or 65% or 45% in certain situations. That cash creates optionality. You mm -hmm. make 5%. Before, we, you never made yeah, anything. Right. Yeah. At least you've got an option here now. Yeah. So now, But you make 5%, but you have an, an optionality that if, if things get tough and stocks pull back to the 10-week line or they build new bases, that cash can be put to work. Uh, versus other people who uh, probably don't have that, that, they don't have that if they've ridden, if they stay fully invested all right. the way and then it, and then it comes back. So I, I think having a little cash is a nice optionality here. You know, I don't think you want to risk all cash because that, that makes, that puts a lot of pressure on you. If you were to get all out, then, then now every time the market has a good day, you just feel that, that pressure from not being in, but there's, there's a natural ebb and flow to this uh, that I think a, a lot of us do it already, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people out there they they do do that. Maybe maybe they you know for me it's probably should slow down a little bit. I tend to you know I tend to make those changes a little faster than than most people. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it's it's good to understand what makes you change, um, but also that ability to change. And I think that's something that we drum a lot here, uh, having that flexibility to have a thesis, but recognize when your thesis is wrong and, you know, accept it and kind of move on and change your thesis as, as more data comes in. So, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this market segment. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the stocks that are either setting up or things that we can learn from. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with that. Trading Tesla. Sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Directions. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast. It's Justin Nielsen here, along with Scott St. Clair, filling in for Arusha Paris. Scott St. Clair, of course, is the premium products manager here at IBD, uh, a position that Arusha used to hold, but uh, he he seeded. Uh, so Scott is the successor. But let's talk a little bit about stocks. Uh, and you, you mentioned it's it's been a little bit you know tougher out there to find setups. You know, a lot of things are extended, um, but you know, it's also earnings season. So we've got that to contend with, um, you know, just as kind of a, uh, a refresher for folks that are not familiar with your style. How, how do you handle earnings season, you know, with, uh, with all of these, uh, volatile moves that can happen? Um, wh what do you do for yourself? So I, I tend to just hold them into earnings. I might reduce the position based on you know the perceived volatility of the name with what the option market is pricing in for the move uh that week but i i found that you know i was i used to cherry pick them and i would you know not a surprise cherry pick them wrong mm -hmm. so i you know the one i thought would go up would go down and the one i thought would do nothing would 
would go up. And so I take the good with the bad. You know, if I have 10 stocks that announce earnings this season, you know, hopefully four are really, really good. You know, three are bad. Let's hope they're not really, really bad. And then, you know, five to seven or six or whatever the number is are in between. And in reality is if I can just survive earnings season, then I've, you know, I've done my job because it's earning season is, is tougher. But mm-hmm. if you're going to have a big winner, they're, they're just not going to let you sell NVIDIA before earnings and buy it back after four times a year and, you know, and, and get all the returns. At least yeah. that's been my experience somewhere along the way. VRT was a great example of, of one that I held through earnings. It, it just, it, you know, there's a 20, 20% gap on earnings and you're just left in the dust if you don't already have that. Right. Um, one thing, uh, do you ever look at kind of, I guess, get a sense of the earnings season? Uh, you know, sometimes the early the early ones out kind of set the tone and then it's like, oh, you know what? This is an earnings season that seems like a little bit more forgiving when the the CFO coughs and, you know, people don't freak out about it. Or, you know, if guidance is not stellar, it's, it, it's, there's just some environments that are a little bit more forgiving. Do you ever kind of change your methodology based on what your perception of that earning season is, uh, kind of early going? Yes. I think it's very important to observe that if you don't own XYZ and they report earnings and the street, the street says, or the headlines say the earnings were great. How did the stock act? Did it act yeah. great? Did it act good? Um, you know, if it opened it, 200 up up 10 and then closes at 195 down five that's not exactly the action you would want so it wouldn't make me change the way i i held but it would definitely contribute to the position size calculator in my brain as far as holding through earnings Mm -hmm. so if i find that it's it's a little tougher season let's say i have a thousand shares normally i might go down to 700 or something like that into the earnings i might go even further, 500, 400, 300, something like that, just because uh, the market is not rewarding, you know, good earnings and or and or probably punishing, you know, pedestrian to weak earnings. So, yeah, how they trade after, like if you had something gap down and it closed unchanged, you know, that'd be great. You survived that. So I would want to know I would look for that. On, on how that stock acted. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of earnings, uh, let's let's go ahead and start maybe with SMCI. And even though this wasn't an earnings that caused this gap up, it was a uh, preliminary guidance. Uh, there was an earnings like move. Um, you know, so again, this is something that kind of you you really couldn't prepare for. But you know, what was what was your take on this move in super microcomputer? Um, you know, just you know earlier this week. Or I guess, or I guess it was uh, at last was on, Friday, Friday of last week. Yeah. I, I, so at first, I was, I don't want to say disappointed because I didn't own the stock, but I, <laughs> I was, I was a little uh, confused by the move in the after hours. I thought the stock should be up more based on the news. Mm-hmm. So the headline was very, very bullish, and the stock in the after hours was up eh, thirty points or something. It was up like ten percent. And given the volatility of this stock, I felt like 10% wasn't really that big a move. And so, given the news, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I expected more. And 
So, you know, a normal person would say, well, it should be up more, therefore buy it because it's going to be up more. Well, it's for me, I think, well, it's, you know, what does the street know that I don't know? And I, you know, I, I, I didn't buy it, but then it opened and just powered higher all day. I think it was up 35% by the end yeah. of the day. And so that was the type of strength that I thought should have had and, and was looking for. And so therefore I bought the stock at the end of the day, which is, it was a Friday. I bought it near the end of the day. I can't recall exactly how close to the end, but uh, the fact that it was a Friday, like I really love stocks that close really strong on Fridays. My experience is you're gonna you have a really good chance that there'll be <laughs> strong Monday. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily with the idea that I want to sell the strong Monday, but maybe I've I have a chance to get ahead. I love to be ahead of uh, on it, you know, even if it's just a little bit. So. I bought that on, on Friday. Now it opened crazy up. I think like 10 or 12, 10%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On Monday, which is, which is kind of the other way around. That was much stronger than I expected. And, uh, Especially after a 35% move the, yeah. the trading day before, you know, to have another 10% on top of that. Now it's getting a little, you know. Yeah. So I, reluctantly sold into that because that's kind of what I I did. And then it, it, you know, then the volatility really kicked in. It had a really very volatile Monday. I think there the high to low is like 85 points or something. So, but it's, you know, barring it's a little stallish today. You don't want to read too much into it, but it's exhibiting the kind of leadership that, you know, stocks that go from 300 to 600 this is kind of how they look when they start. Yeah. And so it, I think it's one of the ones that should be high on your radar if you don't already own it, or if you own it, you it's in all the right areas. And and I'm, you know, I'll be really curious to see once they print that number, what that quarterly earnings block looks like. Yeah. And we were talking with David Ryan um, and, you know, actually Jim Ropel was on IBD live that day and, you know, he was saying, look, this is one that I wasn't in. I kind of was looking at the base and saying, ah, it's, you know, there, there's some flaws here. Uh, but we were kind of all talking about how how much earnings can change, you know, and and forgive flaws, right? If you, if you come up with earnings that are that strong. And in, in this case, again, remember, it wasn't earnings. It was just some preliminary uh, preliminary numbers some preliminary guidance and everything. Um, you know, that that changes everything. And uh, you certainly saw that in the chart. Uh, David Ryan mentioned that he kind of did take that look at how it was trading the aftermarket and thought, gosh, based on these numbers, it it should be a little bit more. And he actually, I think, bought in the aftermarket. Uh, oh, so wow. Participated yeah. in a little bit of that, you know, maybe not with size, but, you know, to have a little piece of it. Um, yeah, just get yourself in there. It's always easy, or I think it's much easier to add to a position you have mm -hmm. that, you know, initial purchase, um, which it would be, is, is the hardest part, right? Because you always feel like as soon as you buy it, it'll, it's going to stop going up and turn right. down, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Like we have the, the, that magic power, right? If, if I had that kind of, if I had that kind of power, I'd do, I'd do, I'd do the other way. I'd buy right. as soon as, as soon as they were uh, going down, I'd buy them to get them to stop going down, you know? Yeah. It's, it's almost like we're still teenagers and we think the world revolves around us, right? You know, like, oh, the market is looking at what I'm doing and reacting accordingly. Correct. Uh, so, um, speaking of uh, a, a thing that we're, we're often all looking at Tesla. You know, uh, and now this one did have earnings um, and uh, it looks like, you know, again, this is not necessarily what 
is going to transpire tomorrow when um, when the stock opens. Uh, this is in the aftermarket. It looks like it's down about four percent. Um, you know, Tesla wasn't wasn't in an uptrend. You know, I, I mean, by any by any measure, uh, you know, you have you'd, you'd have to go pretty kind of far out to kind of see you know see anything uptrendish uh, for this. So, uh, what what's putting Tesla on your radar at all right now? Well, I, I like to have a ballast portfolio of, you know, w at least one short. Okay. Um, I don't know why, Justin. I wish I was. I think it's just a product of, you know, the 2000 stock market was mm -hmm. uh, and then the great financial crisis. And you, you start to develop uh, battle scars from these things. And so um, the market is so strong, but I always like just have that like a like my favorite uh, binky uh, when I have a, a <laughs> when I have a short, uh, you know, that kind of offset. If there's any volatility to the downside, I'm always hopeful that that'll offset some, you know, some of my longs. So, mm -hmm. um, and I have a, you know, a streak of contrarianism, contrarianism in me and I just right or wrong. I, you know, I've mostly been wrong, but I feel like uh, Tesla is just a very good car company. And if that's the case, then it's it's going to go um, a lot lower. And so, um, and it hasn't, it's been really, gosh, I mean, look at the, how strong the market has been in the last couple of weeks. And Tesla has just been grinding lower almost day by day by day. And so I, I don't want to say it's easy, but hopefully anyone who's doing what we're doing, unless you have some super low cost stock. Uh, I, I don't think there's any really real surprise here that the earnings were, were, were poor and that the stock is reacting. You know, it's not that negative, but you know, the stock is down seven, eight points in after hours so far. It's, it's just been a real underperformer relative to all the other, other leading stocks out there. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is when you already have a downtrend in place, um, it's it's amazing how uh, I, I, you know, call it confirmation bias, whatever psychological term you want to use. But people start looking for things that are like, oh, OK, well, th this is this is why, you know, it's in that downtrend. And then, you know, you start thinking and the whole concept of trends is that it's going to continue kind of the way it is until something breaks that. So certainly when you get something that confirms the trend, the downtrend that it's in, it just makes you want to sell more. Uh, at least the, that's what I think in my mind. In the same way that something that's doing well, uh, you know, if it has a blowout earnings, you're like, oh man, this is this is exactly why it's going up so much and why uh, you need to you need to own more. But of course, at some point, you know, it gets overextended either yeah. to the upside or the downside, and so you have to worry about again when that when that change comes. You know, we mentioned earlier with the with the CPI. You know, the the market bottomed when the CPI was kind of the worst and the highest, um, and it's just kind of a reminder that the market does tend to look forward, uh, you know, months in advance as opposed to reacting necessarily to what just happened. Yeah, I mean, if Tesla were to, you know, let's say tomorrow it was unchanged or something after being down 10 or something, that'd probably be a sign that, look, the market kind of knew, for lack of a better word, that these earnings were going to be poor, and the gross margins were really poor. And, um, you know, six, nine, 12 months ago, this report would have had that stock down, you know, 25, 30 points. 
Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a lot of people or a lot of institutions probably who's been, maybe they haven't been selling, but they sure haven't been buying that stock while the market's been rallying, right? They've been focused on other areas. So it, it, it a lot of it is, is built into, which is why we, we use charts, you know, why we look at charts. It's just kind of a, a great picture of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Scott, it was great having you on. It's always a pleasure having you on. We'll have you on for a full show uh, again, where we just concentrate on you because we know how you like to make everything about you, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but always a pleasure having you on, buddy. Thanks a lot for Thanks. showing up. Thanks, Justin. And hopefully Arusha will be back. And um, yeah, he'll I'll... be back next week. Uh, and and I should mention next week, we're going to have Jeffrey Hirsch on the show. Uh, he, of course, is the editor of the Stock Traders Almanac. So by the time that we have him on the show, we're going to have not only the Santa Claus rally, the first five days of January, but also the January mm-hmm. effect, what he calls the trifecta. So he'll be talking about what that will mean for the potential for the market for 2024, uh, what it means to be in the presidential cycle. We talked a little bit about that. So a a lot of that's going to be covered by Jeffrey Hirsch next week. So we really hope you join us for that. Thank you so much for joining us this time around. We'll see you next time. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.